Hi. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Uh. <laughs> Hi, folks. Welcome back to Sound on Siren. This is a podcast hosted by me, Balisa Koitsiwe Kemotakuwa Matutu. My pronouns are they, them, and I currently live on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations folks. Um, I live in a place that is now known as East Vancouver, um, or colonially known as East Vancouver, um, and I'm really excited to be doing the second episode. Ooh, might I keep the glasses on the whole episode? We'll see. In any case... Welcome to the other aspects of my bedroom, the other side of my bedroom. Um, I put up my shelves the other day. There's a shelf right here that you can't see, but it's kind of like that one there and like that one and this one down here. So you're really coming into a completed space. The energy is raining down. You know, we've got the sun beaming down on me right here. Okay, so I put the phone in a little box to make sure that uh, the sun doesn't overheat it so we can keep the video content coming. But we're going to be diving in to this podcast episode, laying the foundations for Pan-Africanism. I think I'm going to take these off. Laying the foundations for Pan-Africanism, because episode one was laying the jazzy foundations. Now we're laying the Pan-African foundations. Um, and I just want to tell y'all to strap in. This is going to be um, like the origins of Pan-Africanism. I'm reading particularly from one uh, specific book and then doing like extended research when I have questions um, to like get more information. But this is obviously not going to be uh, overly comprehensive episode. Um, I'm going to be doing as... Um, bare bones and timeliney as possible because as i've been doing a lot of this pan-africanism research and reading and watching videos and talking to people as well i am noticing that there's so much nuance there's so much nuance there's like so many different people and components and different ways that pan-africanism breaks off here and comes in here and is sitting here but also sitting here and like is exercised in different ways in different communities in different places on the continent in the diaspora blah 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 so um let's have fun nonetheless as we record this next episode um before we get started because i can feel myself about to run on a thousand I'd like to invite you where you are to either close your eyes if you can, if you cannot. Just take a moment here to take a deep breath in and let it go. Taking another deep breath in, letting it go. And naming one thing that you're grateful for right in this moment. Name one thing that you're grateful for. I am grateful for the heat that I'm experiencing right now. Coming through my bedroom window. Hmm. I 
awesome and when you're ready taking your sweet sweet time like Sadhguru reminds us your sweet sweet time to open your eyes or to refocus um, and come back in so cheers mm. recording this on a Saturday afternoon it's nice and sunny and kind of cloudy but the sun is coming through the sun is coming through um, awesome so let's get started here with laying the foundations now the book that I'm reading from in particular is a book by professor Ade Adeke Adebajo which was uh, published in 2020 so just a couple of years ago this is the 38th chapter volume on the pan-african pantheon so this includes the prophets poets and the philosophers of pan-africanism and this will be folks who are both on the continent and also in the diaspora whether now whether then whatever their journey might have been so i mean i feel like i'm doing cliff notes or Cole's notes as they say here or a summary as we would call it back home <laughs> um but yeah i'm just really going to try and offer a place for us to start um to thinking about pan-africanism um and this and its story really you know so um i do i do want to preface this by also saying that there were so many people who helped uh, write this book and this summary um, if you look at like the I think it's before or after the prologue there's like so many different people who helped to put this book together you know pan-africanism at its finest hello collaboration let's go okay so um, professor Adeke hats off to you my friend and thank you so much for um, this this project of yours so now pan-africanism as many people might know it is thought of as a you know um is thought of as a school of thought primarily or like this utopia this idea ideology um what i was reading up on is that pan-africanism just like jazz music this is why i love the collaboration in any case pan-africanism is really and started um with the resistance to slavery and colonialism right and so that's what represented the first stirrings of pan-africanism and these resistances started in the americas by about 1522 the Caribbean um, had a lot of revolts. I think there were about 400 in total just in Jamaica of these revolts. And a really well-known one or a popularly documented one uh, was from the uh, Maroon community, which were folks who were uh, taken from Ghana. And um, they started resisting from 1655 through 1673 and 1685. They did something called the guerrilla warfare, where they went around destroying plantation and plantations and freeing enslaved folks, right? So really, Pan-Africanism is this idea of like, you know, going back home, but also resisting uh, domination, you know, resisting a rulership that does not have your best interest at, at, at heart um, and really finding, you know, oneself again post being taken, um, depending on when that lapse in time was. So 
a really notable figure in the beginning of pan-Africanism and its origins and I would probably even say that the origins of it becoming a um, something that was spoken about or even documented more particularly um, is Edward Wilmot Blyden. Now this chap here is known as the father of pan-Africanism. Um, He's from St. Thomas in the Caribbean, which was then known as the Danish Virgin Islands colony, but which is now the U.S. Virgin Islands. So he used um, Christian civilization to support Africa's regeneration. So he was a religious man, right, uh, using Christianity. He had two notable ideas, two very, very notable ideas. So the first one was this idea of a triple heritage, a triple African heritage, which would include Christianity, Islam, and indigenous cultures. And I'm wondering at this point, like when he put indigenous cultures, you know, we also know that we have a lot of spiritual practices in Africa, across Africa, right? And it's really interesting that he named like Christianity and then Islam and indigenous cultures. And I feel like this is a clear example of how culture in Africa, and I'll speak more predominantly for South Africa, has this spiritual component to it as well. Um, you know, which are ways of being and a spiritual understanding of life and body and self, etc. So... The first notable idea was that triple African heritage. And then the second notable idea was something called the unique African personality, right? And this was the sum of uh, values of the African civilization, um, the body of qualities that make the distinctiveness of African people, right? Because we know, you know, you know, you know that African people are different, you know? And when I'm talking about African people, I'm talking about... African people, even the folks who are now in the diaspora, who are now being called, you know, African Americans and wherever, whatever, African whatever place that you're at, right? I'm talking about that. You know, just look at social culture, just look at society, look at the media, right? There's something, to, we're tapped in a different way. Um, okay. So this unique African personality, uh, he believed that returning returning to one's own soul could be done by returning to your indigenous values right um he was credited by prophets of negritude like senegal's leopold senghor as having provided the intellectual foundation for his ideology in the 1930s um he also championed a concept called ethiopianism which was a concept of regeneration based on biblical scriptures a famous quote that he says kind of around this championing of Ethiop Ethiopianism is that Africa may yet prove to be the spiritual conservatory of the world. And this was an urge, right? This movement of Ethiopianism was the urge to come back home and to help out, to help and regenerate Africa, to help and regenerate Ethiopia, you know, where e Egypt, Ghana, Kenya, and all the different places, places where it's spread out to. Um... Another quote of his about, you know, bringing, bringing people together, this notion of pan-Africanism and how it would manifest. He says, if we are to make an independent nation, a strong nation, we must listen to the songs of our unsophisticated brethren. They sing of their history as they tell their traditions of the wonderful and mysterious events of their tribal or national life. 
of their achievements of what we call the superstitious, right? And I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that because not only does this bring in the aspect of jazz that I'm really so uh, enthralled by, right? And especially Afro jazz, I guess, because that's really what I grew up on is the storytelling that is embedded in there you know the storytelling is not perfect it's not you know um beautiful coherent whatever the case is it's masaga it's it's all encompassed because it really speaks to that authenticity you know so everybody must be listened to it's even in the understanding of you know activism and movements and and, and community everybody has to have a voice even the most marginalized people right and depending on what your community your community components are made of um you have to be able to see who is the most marginalized and also give them an opportunity to speak whether or not it's going to be a poetic or whatever in your own projection and understanding right so i really really love that edward and i were here with that one right um so people are not perfect i will definitely preface this by saying that people are not perfect whatsoever right because he also had some shenanigans so these were his shenanigans right he strongly believed in the european movement or mission to civilize africa right particularly the african-american led liberia and asante and the dahomey um uh, tribes he said he would often say bringing those barbarous tribes under civilized and enlightened influences is what he was encouraging and believed in, right? He also bizarrely saw these early years of slavery as um, positive civilizing, you know, that it added something to Africa, that it added something to Africa that Africa couldn't provide itself, right? Which is really interesting because it, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. But you can see here how, you know, as Pan-Africanism, as history, in history, as people, we have to be able to hold this balance between people's ideas, you know, which might sometimes seem completely opposing, but they happen. They occur, right? So we must make space for that. Um, he also encouraged the partition of Africa by Europeans and he actually collaborated with them Europeans to do that. So those are uh, Blyden's shenanigans. And also, you know, these two um, uh, themes or ideas, right, um, were so helpful in originating or bringing together and parsing through this idea of pan-africanism even a resistance you know even a a, a, a declaration of self i feel like pan-africanism is really a declaration of oneself as african people so the second person that i want to talk about is henry sylvester williams right now henry is a trinidadian or was a trinidadian lawyer slash prophet and he was seen as being the person who coined the terms Pan-African and Pan-Africanism, right? He was the force behind the first Pan-African conference that took place in Westminster Town Hall in London in July in 1900. Please tell me, why does technology get so hot? Yeah? This little adapter thing, blazing hot, okay? 
blazing hot. I don't know why. I don't know why they still do that. Should have come with like a embedded fan or some shit. Okay. So, um, he founded the African Association in London in September of nineteen of eighteen ninety seven. Pardon me. And the mission of this African association was to oppose violence and exploitation that was happening in Africa, in America, and in the Caribbean. Um, he was assisted by somebody called Alexander Walters. So Walters and him, um, well, at least Walters was the African-American bishop of the AME Zion Church. And then these churches were what helped to inspire the Ethiopian church movement to start to set up independent churches in Africa, right? And so there's this way that you see religion play in socio-political dynamics as well, right? Um, because even Blyden, right? Even these folks, the church is always connected, right? And obviously religion was such a big part of slavery and colonialism um in 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 particular you know organized religion in that sense and so it's always interesting to me how um there's still this heavy active participation in religion to also be the backbone of you know giving these stories you know that would provide the hope for people, you know, giving these institutions and other uh, alternative engines for survival and really for understanding what um, spirituality is through a specific religion, you know. So if you listen to a podcast called The Journey Guantu, I really enjoy that podcast. And it really talks about this scale and this like balance that is done in South Africa by you know the traditional indigenous cultures and spiritual beliefs and then these um um institutions of religion you know and how and how one affects the other operates in the other and vice versa but go listen to it if you're interested in kind of seeing particularly from a, a southern african lens what that would look like it's called the journey guantu i'll put it in the in the note things at the bottom um Awesome. And so the last person that I want to shout out here, um, kind of, you know, independently, is somebody called Phyllis Wheatley, because what we are not going to do on this podcast is we are not not going to mention all of the women who were part and participated in liberation movements, um, notably as well. You know, we are not going to do that. We're not going to do that at all. So, in 1773, Phyllis Wheatley was a former enslaved African-American woman, and she was the first to publish a book of poetry, which widely promoted a more positive image of the black world. And I'm going to quote one of her poems. Some view our sable race with scornful eyes. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians... Negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train. Right? And so, really people reclaiming, it would seem here, their, 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 their right, their access to 
religion and religious affiliation, you know? So cool. So we're going to talk about those three people independently like that. The father of Pan-Africanism. Ow! This thing is burning me. Blyden, right? Um, and then the man who coined Pan-African and Pan-Africanism, Williams. And then Phyllis Wheatley, who so beautifully um, was part of the movement creatively and in many other ways. Okay. Now I'm going to be giving you the timeline of the civil society groups that sought to actively challenge racist Western views of Africans and to portray an image, uh, a positive image of their homelands. So this is that timeline of these civil society groups, right? And there's probably so many other momentous occasions that happened in between and around these, but these are the ones that I'm going to be talking about. So in the 1780s, Olauda Equipe, Equiano, who's Nigerian, and Otoba Kugwano, he's Ghanaian, uh, were former enslaved folks who established the Sons of Africa in Britain. And the mission of Sons of Africa was to abolish slavery. In 1784, it's so about four years later, um, in Boston, there was activity because Prince Hall established the first African Masonic Lodge and the mission of the Masonic Lodge was to fight racism and build bridges to Africa. Then in 1787, a few years after that, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones created free, the Free African Society in Philadelphia and Baltimore. And out of this emerged the African Church Movement, which involved the African Methodist Episcopal, which is AME, Church, right? And so when we go back to earlier... And we were talking about, um, we were talking about, you know, Alexander Walters who helped um, Sylvester Williams um, and really that the AME, you know, churches and this movement is what helped um, the Ethiopian church movement as well to start developing churches in Africa. So this was around that timeline there. In 1793, George Liel established the Ethiopian Baptist Church in Jamaica. In 1792, Thomas Peters led 1,000 free, so let, Thomas Peters led 1,000 free previously enslaved people from Canada to the new British colony of Sierra Leone. It is also said that around this timeline, 8,000 Afro-Brazilian and Afro-Cuban people made their way across the Atlantic back to West African cities like Lagos and Porto Novo. Right? So the movement, Exodus, freedom of your people. Let's go. That's that, that's that Exodus, you know? And then in 1900, this was when that London conference happened, that very notable London conference happened, um, where W.E.B. Du Bois, right, um, prophesied or shared, and this is a very famous quote of his, that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, talking directly about race and racial issues, right? So the delegates at that point in the conferences, which we will go through indiv individually in a moment, um, but overall the delegation in these conferences were calling for reparations to African people and Africans for, for the 
for enslavement, colonialism, um, and to promote self-government and recognition of women's rights, right? And there were two female activists, both who are African-American, who spoke at the conference, namely Catherine Impe and Jane Cobden Unwin. Okay, honey? Okay? The females are out here. The females are out here. Can't discount them. Can't discount them. So those are some of the notable trajectories, right? Those civil society movements um, that aided in this liberatory movement of Pan-Africanism. Now, let's talk about the five Pan-African conferences which took place between 1919 and 1945. I'm just going to take a break here because a bitch is sweating under this computer. Oh, and I'm just going to grab a little... A little, um, what is this? Um, scarf? Lol. Not me forgetting where a scarf is. Just to put in between my thighs and this computer so that I'm not sweating so much, so, pro so profusely. Okay, so the five pan Africanist, um, uh, what are these things called? Conferences. <laughs> Lol. Okay, sweet. So, the first conference took place in 1919 in Paris of, in February, right? And um, W.E.B. Dubois was a prominent figure as well as uh, Blaise Diagne, who was a Senegalese-born French parliamentarian, right? So these are the notable folks um, who showed up at this conference. The mission or the aim or the mandate was for the abolition of slavery and passing laws to protect Africans and their land, demanding the right to education and also self-governing. At this time, at this similar time, right, Marcus Garvey, which a lot of people know Marcus Garvey, also known as Black Moses, was mobilizing huge crowds of Black Americans cross-country right with the black to africa movement which had the slogan africa for africans right and so um he used uh the universal negro improvement association and african communities league which he founded and created and he used it to proclaim himself as the provisional president of a racial empire in africa now right Marcus Garvey had a huge following among Rastafarian folks in Jamaica. And he also had a Black Star shipping line, which was a mighty fleet of ships, right, that would bring economic power to Black folks around the world and would transport many of them back to a proud and independent African nation. This was his aim with the Black Star. Right, and the Black Star line or, or shipping line was such a massive influence, along with Garvey, that it inspired Kwame Krumah to use the colors of the Black Star fishing line both in the design of Ghana's post independence flag, um, as well as the name of its soccer team, the Black Stars, baby. Okay, get it together. Okay. So that was the first one, 1919. The next one happened in 1921 in London and Brussels in August to September, right? The people that were the representative speakers were called the intelligentsia, right? So these were the uh, intellectuals um, of the movement. 
which were there to represent and speak on behalf of the rest of the delegates. And they demanded, again, local self-governance um, for Africa. But they also used the terminology, which was not really helpful, right? Terminology which uh, shows the embedded nature of not having people at all levels of um, social status, right, coming in. Right, they weren't being inclusive or or, or 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 equitable here because they would call Africa and Africans the backward groups, right? This language is patronizing, right? And it was giving giving very much a neocolonial internalization aspects of the middle uh, class diasporians, right? Which were then these intelligentsia who were um, these spokespeople per se. Dubois was not immune to this, okay, because he's described Africans as backward peoples in need of civilization, right? And so it's so, it's so important, like I said earlier, to be able to understand, like, people are not perfect. In liberatory movement, there is no perfection, you know? People are people. People have good ideas. People have shit ideas. People have great values. People have lackluster values. Right. So it's really important to note that even somebody who is representative, right, a leader um, can have values that are not completely aligning with the people who they are supposed to be representing. Right. And it's important to note this and to still be able to critique it and say, cool, you know, Dubois, cool, you're out here and also do some reflection. You know, decolonize yourself as well. And so other demands in the second conference, the 1921 one, included indigenous political uh, situations and or a vie for indigenous political situations and democracy as well. The third conference took place in 1923 in London and Lisbon in November. And this one called specifically for Africans to have a say in the running of their own affairs. The fourth conference took place in new 1927 in New York in August. And a really notable person in this conference is George Padmore. He is a Trinidadian intellectual prophet of Pan-Africanism. And at this particular one, a notable thing that he did was that he harshly criticized the white communists for trying to discredit Pan-African organizations. And we know that colonialism, neocolonialism, whiteness will always try to subjugate people right and if it cannot control you if it cannot put you in a specific category um it's going to discredit you right it's going to do dehumanize you as is the practice of these institutions and these systems right now comes the fifth pan-african conference okay this one was this one was giving okay there's so many names in here let's go okay this is this is, I love this. So many different people here. Okay, so the, 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 the fifth one happened in Manchester in 1945 in October. This was when also the center of gravity for Pan-Africanism kind of shifted from the diaspora to Africa. You know, it was almost as though they were passing the baton and saying, folks, 
here you go we are still very much in participation but here here is the movement um let's place the center of its gravity in and on the continent this was dominated by africans like kwame um like jomo kenyatta who's oh, um kwame is Ghanaian, by the way if you don't know um John, jomo kenyatta who is kenyan and hastings banda who is malawian so they were really the core um, um, benefactors, I guess, of this passing, this proverbial passing on of this torch uh, to come back to Africa. The other delegates that were there for this fifth conference were included Joe Apia, who is Ghanaian, Obafemi Owolowo and Jaja Wachuku, as well as H.O. Davies and S.L. Akintola, which were Niger are Nigerian folks. Wallace Johnson from Sierra Leone, Peter Abrams, and Mark Luby from South Africa. Look at that Pan-Africanism nails, baby, baby. Okay. Um, and the major organizers of this particular conference uh, are notably Padmore, Nkrumah, um, and then C.L. James and Garvey are said to have also participated um, in it. There were 200 delegates from variety of different fields. Uh, they were there from the African trade unions, farmers, cooperative societies, and students. And these were the list of their demands. Immediate self-governance and independence for African states, and also the waging of armed struggles for liberation if necessary. They wanted that if in order to become liberated, we are going to have to fight you because we understand that you will not relinquish the control Okay, please come here and give us the weapons to do so. Give us the weapons to fight for our freedom, to liberate ourselves. You know, if they want to tussle, let's tussle, you know. Another uh, demand was a policy of non-alignment with the East and the West, as well as a call for the liberation of both Africa and Asia from colonialism. And this is also where Dubois notably handed... Um, Krumah, this torch of the Pan-Africanism. You know, it was like, my son at 35. That, that, that is what I think of when I think of this situation. <laughs> so those were the five conferences, the five Pan-Africanist co uh, conferences that took place. And that is really the timeline now. Liberatory movements are not insular. They don't happen in a vacuum, you know, and there were so many other things happening at this point. And some of the few notable things or the two notable things that I'm going to note here uh, offset liberation uh, for Africa, right? So the first one is in 1947 when India got its independence. Um, it offset the same happening for Asia and Africa. The second prominent date was in the 1950s where the Mau Mau rebels in Kenya, in Kenya and Algeria, led by freedom fighters, fought against the British and French imperialists. This was the signaling of the pending demise of colonialism in Africa because the Mau Mau rebels like to tussle, bitch. They like to... Don't... Don't fuck with them. Don't fuck with them. But my hat goes off to them. A thousand percent. 1,000, 
No, this drink is refreshing. I don't want to lie to y'all. Very refreshing. Okay. So the last segment of this foundational podcast for Pan-Africanism is going to focus on the three competing schools of thought around Pan-Africanism. And what this really means is like, these three prominent figures had their own kind of idea as to how they wanted Pan-Africanism to spread and manifest in Africa. A very notable one is Kwame Nkrumah, right? If you don't know Kwame Nkrumah, I don't know. In any case, Kwame, right? Kwame was out here being radical, okay? Kwame was part of the radical Casablanca minority. He and the Casablanca minority block consisted of Guinea, Mali, Egypt, Algeria, and Morocco, right? And he wanted, okay, total radicalism, total revolution, you know? No, no cap, okay what I'm saying? So he believed uh, in the United States of Africa. He wanted to create the United States of Africa where all of the countries would pool their resources, their sovereignty in economic security and foreign policy to achieve industrialization, right? So he had this idea of like, you keep your shit, burn it, burn, 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 let it burn, let it burn, hey, burn, 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 let it, let it burn, burn, let it, let it burn, okay. Um, and he envisioned that there would be a, uh, continental authority to kind of oversee the integrated planning, the transport systems, building vast, uh, road railway networks that would connect all of Africa, um, increasing air links and also upgrading all of the ports on the continent. Now, he said right and i and i don't know if this was him who coined the phrase or whatever there is but he said that people who associated in the agreement between the francophone africans and the french-led european common market were participating in something called collective colonialism right where they would keep through this uh um common market they would keep africa as having to feed off of all of the resources and keep sending it sending it to europe the whole time you know he instead wanted to create an african common market right that would have a common currency and that would also have common uh policy for inter-african and extra-continental trade right so really making africa its own hub you know, um, he wanted to create the union government of African state of the African state, which would involve, you know, like I said before, a common currency, uh, a monetary zone, and then the African military command as well as common foreign policy. So that was Nkrumah. Nkrumah is like, burn it all, baby. Maziche, maziche. gonke. Okay, and we'll start from the beginning. We'll just do it by ourselves together. Then there was Julius Nyerere. Okay, now Julius Nyerere for me, I would say, is probably is probably right in between Nkrumah and Senghor, right? So Julius Nyerere was a Tanzanian socialist leader. Uh, he believed in the gradualist approach for integration right using these sub-regional bodies like you know the east african inherited federal institutions as building blocks for 
Africa's economy, economic structures, financial structures, policies, and all of this stuff, right? So he believed that there are things we can use that they left over, which we can use to our benefit, right? How about we integrate, take a little bit from here, take a little bit from here, and bring them together. He said, this is a quote, okay? He said, African unity at present is merely an emotion born of a history of colonialism and oppression. He said, it, it has to be strengthened and expressed in economic and political forms before it can really have a positive effect on the future. Right? Which I believe. I also believe. Right? He advocated, just like Nkrumah, for that United States of Africa, but he thought of it as the final goal. When Nkrumah thought of it as the only objective, Nkrumah was like, this is what we are doing. This is, the, this is the goal. Not only are we going to be achieving it in the long term, but we're working on it right now. Whereas Nyerere was like, let's make that the projected goal, the idealized outcome, but let's have this slow, gradual progression to getting there right he wanted to offer all of these you know african nations and african countries that were becoming independent and you know starting to become self-governing and whatnot he wanted to allow them um what i call self-determination leniency right that they could determine which aspects they wanted to integrate when they wanted to integrate them to give them the opportunity to be fully self-expressive and his main focus was creating a federation of Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda. That's Nyerere. So that's the middle, that's the middle man, right? Then comes Leopold Senghor, right? This man, ish, baba. <laughs> okay, so then comes Leopold Senghor. Leopold Senghor is a Senegalese poet president. And he advocated for the uh, cooperation of economic, financial, cultural, technical, and scientific issues, while also pursuing a minimalist political cooperation where African states would harmonize their foreign policies. He believed, he believed, okay? He believed just like Blyden right that colonialism had its good that in the bad that colonialism brought and you know the way that it um uh destroyed the values of africa and africans that it brought good notable substitutions or replacements <laughs> wild people are wild out in this world okay in any case you know and one of these other things that he thought that colonialism did in its good was to bring in these technical skills right to bring in these technical skills he was so proud of this integration or the association with you know aspects of colonialism that were great that he um prided himself on sending his citizens in different fields to go and get training in france that was badge of honor baby you know what i'm saying badge of honor okay and you to you babes you to you 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 do you um so in my belief Senghor wanted this Kumbaya movement, you know, he's giving very much Nelson Mandela vibes, 1994. He's giving very much Rainbow Nation vibes, right? 
and I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that. So, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that <laughs> on that front. Um, the last thing that I want to mention, the very last thing that I want to mention, setting these uh, Pan-Africanism foundations, is that in 1963, 32 African states met in Addis Ababa to sign what is called the Organization of African Unit Charter. And this charter, right, believed in this gradualist approach, right, of um, uh, liberation and um, industrialization of Africa, right? But what then happened here is that a lot of these components of this charter were not really legally binding and lacked implementation mechanisms, right? That was the downfall. The great thing about the charter is that it always had a firm and consistent commitment to decolonization and to the anti-apartheid struggles in South Africa, which the diaspora or the diaspora contributed to immensely, significantly, right? What happened with the OAU is that they rendered the executive and the admin branches ineffective by giving them little power. Little power, you know? And as states struggled to transform themselves into viable nations, the link between pan-Africanism and civil society was broken leaving the diaspora effectively abandoned because then it became a political game, right? The politics of the matter took precedence. So a notable person here is Diallo Telly, who is a Ghanaian technocrat, I love that word, a Ghanaian technocrat and prophet who was the first substantive, substantive Secretary General <laughs> of the OAU between 1964 and 1972. He said, right, that Pan-Africanism had been born into an atmosphere of complete alienation when it came to the continent, physical exploitation and spiritual torment. And so, you know, the, the, the resolve or the resolution here is that, you know, and I know there's a lot of work that has been done on Pan-Africanism. I'm merely scratching the surface here. I'm merely laying the foundations here. There are people who are actively uh, doing Pan-Africanist work, have done this research, like, and with the research that I have come up to right now, I do have hope for Pan-Africanism. I do think, though, that we really need to take a really good look at what Pan-Africanism is. And I know that there's a debate. There's a debate, a heavy debate happening right now with what, who is an African. There's a book that I'm trying to get called What is an African or Who is an African, if I'm not mistaken. Um, because that is also a debate, you know. We know that... Um, there are some folks, some African-American folks, who do not count themselves as African solely, right? And so 
it would make sense. It would make sense because a lot of things are internalized. A lot of things are conditioned. A lot of things are learned. Right? And so what happens when you've internalized that, that um, colonialism or a specific way of viewing yourself, Africa, as well? You know, what happens when you, 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 you've internalized viewing Africa as a less than place? You obviously don't want to be associated with it, you know? But I'm hoping that things like this podcast can offer us a different view of Africa. Can offer us a different view of Africans and philosophers and poets and the music. And that we can actually return back to storytelling about prominent figures who don't really get spoken about that much. And I'm also hoping that it allows me to travel Africa in order to capture exactly what is happening on the continent via Pan-Africanism and jazz music. So that is, that is where we finish it off for now, laying these jazzy foundations. I will say that I thought that I had this whole book but I did not. The PDF had only given me uh, like almost 100 pages of the Pantheon, which is fair, which is fair. You know what I'm saying? So I've purchased it and it's on order right now, but it's going to arrive 21 days from yesterday. <laughs> so I find that really funny because I was like, oh, we're going to do a jazz episode, Pan-African episode. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. There's lots to talk about. There's lots to say. Um, and so we'll keep weaving our story and our perspective. Thank you so much for joining me yet again on the second episode of Sound on Siren. Um, yeah, as you know, podcast episodes are available on Spotify via Anchor. I'm going to try to get them on all other streaming platforms by um, the end of the month, I'm hoping. And you can watch us on YouTube as well. Please share with your friends. Um, if your friends are interested in Pan-Africanism or have, have no clue what it is, uh, this can be a great starting and jumping off point for them. And uh, thank you for... Um, participating and supporting me. Once again, my name is Palitza Koitsiwe do. My pronouns are they, them. And uh, I'll see you folks in episode three. Mwah. Take care.